Well, let's pray briefly one more time. Father, this is your word, and we are your servants. We desire to hear from you this morning as, in a sense, a children who are sitting on the laps of their father, eager to hear what you would have to say to us about your faithfulness and your promises. So strengthen us with this word this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's, this has been an interesting journey, I think you would agree with, journeying through these first five chapters of the book of Exodus. If you're a guest with us, I'm Mark, I'm one of the pastors, and we're making our way through Exodus section by section, verse by verse, and we land in chapter six this morning, I believe this is week eight or nine in our sermon series. But these first five chapters have been a, a little bit of a roller coaster ride, haven't they? I mean, it's been like, God, is your plan going to get fulfilled or not? I mean, it's like you made the promise. We had so much hope in Exodus chapter 1. The people are multiplying and good things are happening. And then it seems like one obstacle after another, after another gets thrown in the way. First, it's Pharaoh and his attempts at genocide and infanticide and harsh labor trying to squelch the Israelites out. Then it's Moses and his premature attempt to deliver the people and then his objections and his struggles to even accept the call. And then as we saw last week in chapter 5, he gets out of the blocks and he gets going and he fails miserably. It goes from bad to worse. What is going on in this story? Well, here's, here's what's happening. You have a plan being affected and worked out, but it's a plan on two different levels. You have God's plan and then you have men's plan. And God's plan is going right according to schedule. It is on time, and all the hiccups are part of his greater providential purpose. He's not swayed. He's not wringing his hands. He's not wondering, what am I going to do now? They keep blowing it. No. God is working out his perfect plan through all the brokenness that we see in these chapters. But on a second level, in terms of the plans of men, it is immensely discouraging. It's discouraging to Moses. It's discouraging to the people of Israel. It's bad. And in that sense, we could quote that great theologian, Mike Tyson. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. When Mike was interviewed one time before a fight, he said those very words. What are your plans tonight? Well, he's like, we all got a plan until we get hit. Then you just deal with it. And that's what I think we're seeing a lot in these chapters. They're getting punched in the mouth. And they're trying to deal with it. They're dealing it in with some ways very sinfully and in other ways very faithfully. But it's a mixed bag. Think about it. Israel cried out in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, and the Lord heard their groaning. They were doing the right thing. They were praying to God in the midst of their distress. And they were heard. And then they got punched in the mouth, having to find out that they would now have to find their own straw. And so they responded in chapter 5, verse 21, as we saw last week, by putting their finger in Moses' chest and saying, what are you doing? What is God doing? It's just gotten worse. Also, Moses had obeyed God, and then he got punched in the mouth by Pharaoh. And he responded with, why, God, did you even send me out here? This is a colossal waste of time. According to chapter 5, verse 22, last week he said, oh, Lord, why have you done evil? to this people. Why'd you ever send me? And we left things on that pretty discouraging note last week. But, alas, it continues even into chapter 6. Look at verse 9 in our text this morning. We see Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit 
and harsh slavery. See, sometimes life beats you down so much and you're so discouraged and so brokenhearted that it's hard to even listen to God's word. We see it again in verse 10. So the Lord said to Moses, go in and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people go out of the land. But then Moses responds, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of of uncircumcised lips? He says it again at the end of the chapter. We didn't read those verses yet, but look at verse 28. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell the king of Egypt all that I say to you. Verse 30, but Moses said to the Lord, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses again reports that he is not up to the task. The first time in Exodus chapter 2, he failed. The second time in Exodus chapter 5, he failed. On both occasions, he was rejected by his people and he was rebuked by the Pharaoh and his actions seemed to make things worse. Why would it be any different this time? Ever been there? Can't hear the promises of God because of your pain? They could not see through their suffering you could cran- translate the Hebrew phase, phrase in verse 9 where it says they were, they were broken in spirit as literally they, were sh- they had shortness of wind. Shortness of spirit, shortness of breath. You know what that feels like, right? <sighs> Can't get your breath back. Can't seem to get your wind. They're panting. They're out of breath. One commentator describes the Israelites' experience and Moses' experience as demoralization brought on by exhaustion. Demoralization brought on by exhaustion. I'm sure that describes some of you this morning. You're too hurt to hear and too burdened to believe. And it's all too human in those moments of broken spiritedness that we turn the I wills of God's salvation into the I won'ts of unbelief. As we saw last week, disappointment, despair, and disobedience can emerge from several causes. Things like half-hearted obedience or short-sighted forgetfulness or external circumstances or internal unbelief. Let me add two more because before we get to the, the prescription for how to deal with this, we need to talk about two more ways not to deal with it. Okay, Don't deal with brokenness of spirit this way. Number one, self-reliance. Taking upon yourself the entire burden. This is what Moses was guilty of doing, I think, a lot of the time. He was taking upon himself the entire burden for the success or failure of the deliverance of the Israelites. It is not your responsibility, nor is it Moses' responsibility, to prove that God is faithful. That's his responsibility. We are often led to despair When we see things going wrong and we feel the whole weight of the future is on our shoulders, it is not. You are not the Christ. Self-reliance is not the way forward. Number two, self-absorption is not the way forward. When you're hurt and when there's a brokenness of spirit like the Israelites are experiencing here, you begin to focus on that brokenness. You focus on your broken spirit. You focus on your failures. You focus on your deficiencies. Listen, pride is manifested as much in self-pity as it is in self-promotion. Self-absorption is self-absorption. 
They're, they are two sides of the same coin. Humility does not lead us to think more of ourselves, but it also does not lead us to think less of ourselves. Humility leads us to think of ourselves less. Last week we saw how Moses had accused God of breach of contract. He said, listen God, you're not delivering on your promises here. And he sued the Lord, metaphorically speaking. But two things we should notice about this. At least he complained to God. Right? At least he talked to God about it. He took his complaints in five, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, straight to the Lord. God is the one who gives us rest from our burdens, and his shoulders are broad enough to carry our distress. He's big enough. He can handle it. It's okay to ask God questions. That's what all of God's people have done. Have you read the scriptures? Let me give you a few examples. Abraham, Genesis 15, 2. Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? What are you going to do about this, God? Or Job. In Job 7 and Job 13, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? What about David in the very psalm we read this morning? Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or Jeremiah. Remember in Jeremiah 20, he was put in jail for preaching God's word, and he prays out his complaints too. Or John the Baptist, he does the same thing when he's in prison. Are you the Christ or should we ask for another? Matthew 27, 46, Jesus did it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what all godly people do. These kinds of questions are not sinful, provided they are asked honestly and faithfully, not impatiently or rebelliously. There is a way to ask those and it be sin. There is a way to ask those and it be rebellion, but not all the time. Not all the time. It is much better to talk things out with God than to take them out on someone else, which is usually what will happen if we don't take them out on the Lord or take them to the Lord. This sort of prayer provides a means of working through real emotions, of biblically dealing with anger and frustration rather than suppressing it. One commentator describes God's reaction to such complaints. Did you notice how God responded to that accusation from last week? Let's, let's revisit it. Look at chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now, who thinks chapter 6, verse 1 should start with Moses being killed? I mean, for the last time, brother. I mean, for the last time. How, how many times we got to go over this? This is like his 12th visit to the principal's office for the same offense. What does the Lord do? Look at verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. In other words, now you're broken enough to hear me. Isn't that interesting? Brokenness of spirit sometimes yields us unwilling to hear, but it's precisely brokenness of spirit that we need in order to hear. 
And that's the mystery that's going on in this passage. One commentator says, wherever this happens, whenever there's a complaint to the Lord, it does not bring a swift retaliation from the Lord upon those who have dared to complain, but an assurance that their complaint has been heard and a promise of action will be given. It's just amazing how patient and loving our God is. He receives the complaint, he filters it through his mercy, grace, and love for the one complaining, and he reassures them that he is about to act. God did not scold him, much less kill him, for his complaint. In fact, he used it as an opportunity to reassure them. Before we get into the, uh, the three assurances that we're going to talk about here, I want to stress that how we ultimately deal with a broken spirit is with the promise that God is God. All the other assurances are secondary. Throughout this passage in chapter 6, verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 8, this is said repeatedly, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Certainly God gave Moses plenty of other details about his plan of salvation, but the beginning, middle, and end of the message is I am the Lord. Whatever problems we have, whatever difficulties we face, the most important thing is to know God and to know he is the Lord. We're called to place our difficulties in his hands, place our problems on his shoulders. We're called to trust in the one who says, I am the Lord. So when there's trouble in the family and we don't know how to bring peace or when a relationship is broken and it can't be mended or when nothing seems to go right, we're not certain how things will work out. He is the Lord. George Whitfield, missionary and preacher, last couple centuries, said this amazing quote. He says, To explain God's providence by his promise and not his promise by his providence, I find is the only way to get and keep our comforts. Think about that. Think about that. To explain God's providence by his promise and not his promise by his providence, I find is the only way to keep our comfort. See, that's what's going on in this passage. The Israelites and Moses, the reason that they're not being comforted is because they're looking to the providence of God first and not the promise of God. You have to look at the promise of God. And then let that interpret the providence of God. If you look at the providence of God and try to interpret the promise of God, you'll lose your comfort. That's what's happening in this passage. They're looking at the providence of God. They're saying, God, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? It makes no sense. And you know what's happening? Brokenness of spirit. Discouragement. Crushed under burden and despair. Moses is doing the same thing. How can you send me? It's not working. It's because they're judging God's promise by his providence. And that is never a good thing to do. Because God's providence is often mysterious. It works its way out, not according to our timetable, not according to anything we can truly understand. His promises we understand, though. They're baby talk. We can understand God loves you. God is faithful. God cares for you. God is made promises to you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I heard your groaning. I'm going to deliver you. So that is key, brothers and sisters. If you take nothing, nothing else away from this message, take that away. Always lead with promise first. 
fill your gaze with the promises of God and let the providence of God be what it will. But fill your gaze with God's promise. Don't fill your gaze with God's providence. First of all, you probably didn't interpret it right anyway. You're filtering it through all sorts of things and trying to read his providence, and he hasn't given you that decree. You can't open that scroll and break its seal and unfold the decrees of all of history and say, ah, that's why God did that. I know why. You don't. Nobody does. We don't know why he does what he does. He does what he, whatever he pleases among the hosts of heaven and among men. That's what we know, but that's because it's a promise, <laughs> not because he's revealed it in great detail. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed belong to us. You know what the secret things are? His providence. You know what the things revealed are? His promise. Bank on his promise. Go to his promise. That's what he's revealed to us. We start trying to crawl into his secret counsel and understand all the ways of his providence. Not only will we find ourselves frustrated, but we're being disobedient in the process. It's none of your business. It's none of my business. Our, our, our business is to pay attention to what has been revealed. And this passage in chapter, chapter 6 gives us three things he's revealed concerning his promise, and that's where I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning. We're going to look at the fact that God has kept his promises, God will keep his promises, and God is keeping his promises. And that's all we need to know. Number one, God has kept his promises. Look at chapter 2, or chapter 6, beginning at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty. Verse 3, or verse, uh, verse three, I, yeah, verse three, I appeared to Abraham. Verse 4, I also established my covenant with them. Verse 5, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel. And I have remembered my covenant. You see all the past tense verbs there? I appeared to Abraham. I established my covenant. I heard their groaning. I remembered my covenant. God has kept his promises. There is nothing that God has promised concerning the Exodus that he has not fulfilled already up to this point. Now, he's going to do more, but what he's promised, he's done. He kept his promise to Abraham. How do we know that? Because Abraham's seed was preserved, and it multiplied, and it grew, according to Exodus chapter 1. In spite of all the opposition, the people of Israel are a great and mighty nation at this point. That was God's covenant to Abraham, that he would make his people into a great nation. He established it. He made it happen. He pledged himself in Genesis 15 through 17 that if I don't keep this, kill me. He heard their groaning, did he not? He's heard it. He sympathized. He knows what they're going through. He's raised up a deliverer, namely Moses and Aaron, who will be by his side. He's remembered his covenant. He's not forgotten his people. And that's what we need to remember in the midst of our struggles as well, in the midst of our broken spirit, in the midst of our trials. We need to remember that God has kept his promises. God has a blameless track record of faithfulness. Everything that he has said has come true, that, has, that, that he has decreed to come true. It has happened. Remember what is reported in Joshua in those early chapters of the book of Joshua? It's repeated again and again in those early chapters, and everything the Lord promised came to pass. 
he did not fail one good word he said to them. Now, it didn't happen in their timing. It didn't happen in their understanding, but it came true. Brothers and sisters, God has kept his promises. Number two, God will keep his promises. God will keep his promises. Now, I want you to notice the I wills that he said he's going to do in verses 6 through 8. Look at verses 6 through 8. He says, Therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you out into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Do you think God's trying to say something? He's trying to say, I am going to keep my promises. I have kept them. I will keep them. Now, I want you to notice that these I wills can kind of be grouped into four basic promises, and I want to talk about those each individually very quickly. Number one, liberation. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to deliver you. God is going to deliver his people from captivity and bring them into freedom. He's going to get them out of the harsh slavery that they're experiencing in Egypt. Number two, redemption. He said, I will redeem you. Redemption is the release of a slave through the payment of a ransom. It's going to happen. Adoption. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And finally, possession. I will bring you into the land and I will give it to you. He's promised them liberation. He's promised them redemption. He's promised them adoption. And he's promised them possession. Brothers and sisters, do you know the same is true with our salvation in Jesus Christ? which is the greatest exodus of all. This exodus that we're reading about is but, but a historical type of the real one. The greatest one and the real one is the exodus that Jesus Christ has accomplished. Jesus is our liberator, who according to Revelation 1.5 has freed us from our sins by his blood, the greatest form of slavery any one of us could ever know. And he's transferred us, according to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, from the domain of darkness, that is Satan, and into the kingdom of God. Far worse the domain of Satan than the domain of Pharaoh. Even though in some ways those domains were overlapping. Jesus is not just our liberator, he's our redeemer. He's paid the costly price of our sin by suffering and dying on the cross. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not only are we liberated and redeemed in Christ, we're adopted in Christ. Right? Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, it is in and through the work of Christ that we're adopted. That God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And he's made us his special people. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we are a chosen race. We are the holy priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are the people who have been redeemed. We are those people whom God, on whom God has set his affection. We are Israel. 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1 4 reminds us also that Jesus is going to bring us into a place 
or we will possess an eternal glorious land. It is by his resurrection that according to 1 Peter 1.4, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we get real estate. And it's way, way better than a strip of land in the Middle East called Canaan. It is the entire earth, renewed and glorified. This is what's pictured in Revelation 21, 1 to 5. I read this for your comfort. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold I am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true God will keep his promises praise God that there's coming a new heavens and the new earth and God has signed it in his own resurrected blood These verses offer a summary of the entire Exodus, which is really a summary of the whole Bible story. It's a summary of the gospel. God is redeeming us from slavery to sin and death so that we might be his people and live with him forever in his new world. That's what's going on here, and that's what we're going to receive. As Phil Riken says, in Christ, God's I wills of the Exodus have become the I have done it's of the gospel. He's already done it. He's done it. His I wills to them at that historical moment were still to come, but ours are already fulfilled. He has done it. He's liberated us. He's redeemed us. He's adopted us. He will glorify us in Christ if we belong to him. Brothers and sisters, we've got to take the long view. We've got to take the long view. Moses had much more good news coming than even he could ever fathom. And brothers and sisters, beloved of God, you have much more good news coming to you than you can even fathom. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has promised to those who love him. You can't even, you can't even invent it. No tongue can recite the good things that our God has prepared for us. He remembered his covenant in Exodus. He remembered his covenant on resurrection morning, which is why we're here and celebrating. We're, you know why we're here? Because God keeps his promises That's why we're celebrating, and God will keep his promises. That's why we gather. We gather because God has kept his promises, and he will keep his promises. He has remembered his covenant, and he will remember his covenant. Every I will of divine promise ends up as an I did of gospel deliverance. God has not forgotten who you are. Let's not forget who he is. Number three, and finally, God is keeping his promises. Now, now we meet a very unusual moment in Exodus chapter 6. You would expect something thrilling. Look at verse 13 again. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now it's going to happen. He just said it in verse 1. Now! But wait, let me give you a genealogy. What in the world? Look at verse 14. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. 
the sons of Simeon. I'm not going to read them all. But look, you just go down and you see names and names and names and names and names. What in the world is going on here? Then you get to verse 27. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the people out of Israel. Okay, now we're back to the plot. What's going on? All right, little Bible quiz. Who's writing Exodus? I know God is ultimately under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but who's writing it? Moses is writing Exodus. For whom? The generation that's currently existing or a later generation? A later generation. Moses inserts this genealogy, and it's a selective genealogy. It doesn't contain all the names of all the people of Israel. He puts this genealogy in there to say that God was right. That God was right. God kept his promises. God knew what he was doing in choosing Moses and Aaron. Even though Moses and Aaron didn't agree, at least Moses didn't agree with it, thought he made a bad call, a bad draft pick, a bad choice, he goes back and writes this genealogy to explain that God has quietly and purposefully been at work for hundreds of years preparing Israel for Moses and Aaron to lead them out. Now, I want you to just notice a couple things about the genealogy. We're not going to go in great detail here. But there's three of Jacob's sons who are listed here. He had 12, remember? But Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, the oldest three boys, are the only ones that are listed. And that's intentional. He's not trying to give an exhaustive genealogy. But he ties, he ties, he's, he's zeroing in on Levi's family, the thirdborn son, and one of his sons was Kohath. And from Kohath's line came Amram, Moses' dad. Okay? Now, likely the Amram that's mentioned here in the, in the genealogy is different from Moses' father, although they shared, probably shared the same name. But there's, I don't have time to go into it. There's too much time in between this and this genealogy to, to believe that that was actually Moses' father. It would be ridiculous. It'd be like he had the child in the very last year of his life, and they lived long in those Old Testament ages. You knew that. But nonetheless, the point is, is verse 26. These are, now notice this, these are the Aaron and Moses. Hold on, let's look at them. Look at verse 21st. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. Now skip down to verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. Those guys. It's those guys that were in the providence and promise of God and plan of God for the people of Israel in the Exodus. This genealogy was mainly intended to remind the people of Israel that Moses and Aaron were in a direct line from Abraham, therefore they had full authority, and the story of the Exodus is therefore fully authenticated. God made sure all of his promises came true. He's keeping his promises. The genealogy is meant to reassure the people that God did not pick the wrong person. He picked the right person. Moses and Aaron are part of the family of Abraham. And think about this. The genealogy here is not mainly to give accreditation to Moses. That was authenticated through his divine call in Exodus 3. God spoke to him out of the midst of the burning bush. There is nothing that he needs more than a divine theophany call to this work. But Aaron needs a little bit of that. And so what we get here is Aaron's credentials and his legitimacy 
as Moses' older brother, to serve as a leader alongside of Moses. Think about it. Look at how the genealogy is bracketed. Look at verse 13 again. This is the last thing we're going to note, and then we're going to wrap up. Verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses, sorry, verse 12, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, for I am of uncircumcised lips? Okay, and then it makes the promise. Then go to verse 29 or 30. But, the Lord, but Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So this is bracketed by that account in Exodus 4 where Moses says, I can't talk very well. And what does God do to respond to him to help him with that? Look back at Exodus 4. Exodus 4 and verse 14. Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. So this authenticates that, that not only was Aaron needed, but he was called by God as being in line of the family of Abraham through Levi that he should be there. And so don't discredit Aaron, Israelites. He spoke for me. I I couldn't even talk. I gave him the words, and I said, would you say those? And he said it. And so what's here is that Moses and Aaron are evidence that God is keeping his promises in the present tense. That's why the genealogy is there. Genealogies are always in the Bible, in part, not exclusively, but in part to show God's faithfulness up to that point. That's why they're there. So even when you read in Matthew chapter 1, you get the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Wow, God has been faithful. God has kept his promises. Here's the Messiah. Besides teaching us that God is faithful to his promises, genealogies also teach us one more important thing. And this is very important to remember when we are going through our suffering and when we are encountering our own broken spirit. And it's this. God knows your God knows your name. This is what Jesus taught us to rejoice in, didn't it? Didn't he? If you are in Christ this morning, that is true for you. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, Jesus said, that the spirits are subject to you when the disciples return from their great Satan-defeating mission. He says, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Philippians chapter 4, verse 3 Paul says this. He says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. God knows their names. God knows Mike Deckman's name. God knows Lauren Deckman's name. God knows Justin Klein's name. God knows Rebecca Klein's name. God knows Jamie Dixon's name. God knows Tom Pope's name. God knows Paula Payne's name. God knows Nancy Chapel's name. God knows Kay Willis's name. We could go through all this. He knows your name. He knows your name. Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. For his presence on earth, his, for his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the fire. In a crowd this size, there are no doubt those whose names are not in the book of life. God knows your name because he knows everything, but not in a saving way, not in a relational way. And if that's, that's you this morning, boy, do I have good news for you. Because it doesn't have to stay that way. It does not have to stay that way. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's your offer. It's a free gift. If you will turn from your sin and embrace the only Savior that God has offered, greater than Moses, providing a greater deliverance than in the Exodus, out of sin and death, due to his conquering cross and his victorious resurrection, where he paid for our sin of all those who will ever trust in him, vindicating God's righteousness, providing us with a righteousness that we don't have, a perfect spotless record by virtue of his perfect life, and a perfect spotless atonement by virtue of his wrath-absorbing, curse-defeating death. And conquering it all with the resurrection from the dead three days later, if you will turn from your sin and embrace Christ by faith, your name's in the book of life. And you will discover it has been from the foundation of the world. And God brought you the gospel in time to save you and bring you to himself. But to be honest, I think there are going to be a lot of people in our Davis County area, in our Bible Belt area, who will stand before the Lord Jesus on the last day and just be utterly shocked. They memorized Romans 6.23. They memorized John 3.16. They knew those verses. Maybe they heard them in a Sunday school class or at a VBS, and they were baptized at age six, and they never thought about God since then. But boy, I'm glad they, glad they took care of that way back then. And they're going to stand before Jesus on the last day thinking they're in the book of life and hear the following words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Now, that's not, a perfect, that's not a perfect obedience. We know that. Jesus is not going to condemn his weak sheep who sin and falter and struggle and all that. But he is going to condemn those who did not care for him a lick and thought that they walked an aisle or signed a card or were baptized or did something like that and that's all they needed they didn't care to pray they didn't care to walk with jesus they didn't care to repent of their sins they didn't care to ask for god's forgiveness they didn't care to try to be obedient they didn't care to read the bible they didn't care to go to church they didn't care to encourage other christians they didn't care to be involved in ministry they didn't care about any of that stuff and jesus is going to say to them listen not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So I close with this. Just remember, brothers and sisters, the Christian life is secure. God has loved you. God cares for you. 
God has sent his son to die for you. If you embrace Christ, you'll never be, for, you'll never be forsaken. You'll never be condemned. He will always care for you. He will always he'll carry you all the way to heaven. But the Christian life is not only secure, it's also serious. It's serious. It means we take our discipleship to Christ seriously. We follow the lamb wherever he goes, like Revelation says. Those are the people that conquer. Be encouraged this morning. God has kept his promises. God will keep his promises. God is keeping his promises. It's an unbroken promise for a broken spirit. May he encourage us with it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much this morning for the opportunity to get into your word and to hear of your amazing faithfulness, to hear of your unstoppable purpose, to hear of your unbroken promises. May we rest in those. May we not judge your providence by your prom or not judge your promise by your providence, but always judge your providence by your promise. May we derive much comfort from what you have done, from what you are doing, and what you promise to do. And may your promise be all of our gaze. May your promise be all that is in our hearts. May we rest upon them more than we rest upon our feelings more than we rest upon our circumstances, more than we rest on our perspectives, more than we rest on anything. For the only, the only truly objective one is you. And you have spoken. And you have given us your promises. Help us to believe them. Your faithfulness is great. Your mercies are new every morning. 